This is episode 180 of Alohomora for March 5th, 2016. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another magical episode of Alohomora. I'm Eric Skull. I'm Kat Miller. And I'm Caleb Graves. And we want to welcome our special guest host for this week, Jessica. Jessica, say hello to all the listeners out there. Hi. <laughs> well, we are super glad to have you here with us. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your house, and anything else interesting. Okay, well, um, I'm a Slytherin. So that's exciting because I know you guys don't usually have Slytherins on the show. (laughs) Eric, if you take Hufflepuff, we'll have the the quad this week. Yeah. Yeah, so um, it's weird because when when they put up the test again, I kind of, I had to take it again just to see what would happen, even though I'm pretty sure that my house is Slytherin. But the second time I took the test, I got Ravenclaw. So that's interesting. I wasn't expecting that. I find those houses often go hand in hand, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense to me. And um, I really like my wand. It's a, it's rowan wood with a phoenix feather. And 11 and 3 fourths, reasonably supple. Nice. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> hey. I, I just, I, I love, no, no, no. I love like the reasonably like... <laughs> It's it's well it's well reasoned. There there are there's yeah I don't know it pulls its own. I, I don't really I know. know. It's just the word reasonably is funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But so, uh, I'm actually a professional ballet dancer. Oh, oh really? Wow. Very cool. Yes, I am. So you weren't lying when we when we clapped to sync our tracks. You're pretty good with your body. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just got out of rehearsal where we were doing uh. We were. It was a ballet where we we're doing like hand clapping and stuff, and so I thought that was pretty funny. Oh, that's are you perfect. with a company right now? Or? <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm with the Pittsburgh Ballet Theater. I mean, if you go oh. on their website, you can see me in the core online. My photo. Pennsylvania. <laughs> yep. Um, but where the wind so comes I've... sweeping through the trees. <laughs> Sorry, it's my home state too. Oh really? I'm actually from mm-hmm. California, so moving here was oh. like, oh, this is what weather's like. what's it's funny you're uh sort of between the two homes uh the houses of ravenclaw and slytherin i was about to say this is going to be a lonely chapter for you (laughs) in slytherin but it's also a pretty good ravenclaw chapter so yeah i'm excited though um i have a few things to say about slytherin definitely um but so like my harry potter story real quick um my i have relatives in england and they got me and my sister the first two harry potter books when when like the second book came out and i hated reading and so i hid it under my bed and i probably didn't read it for at least a year and then i found the books again and i started reading them and um, I kind of fell in love with them. And I, I remember seeing the first movie, not in the theaters, but like I think my parents bought it for me and my sister to see. And Voldemort's face at the end of the movie 
like scarred me. I remember just like holding a pillow and like hiding my face. It was so scary to me that I, I didn't really, I wasn't really into it then. And then like, I remember hearing friends talk about that the Chamber of Secrets was out in theaters and I was like, not interested. Um, but between, between the second movie and when Prisoner came out in 2004, I got pretty obsessed with the books, which got me really obsessed with the online craze going on because I wanted to know more information. And then that got me obsessed with like all of the actors of the movies and stuff. And I used to role play a lot. So I feel really connected to like specific characters because I would go on forms and I would just do like this really crazy literate role playing where it was it was as if we were writing our own version of a book of Harry Potter that hadn't come out yet so it was so fun I would always play like Draco Malfoy and I'm (laughs) (laughs) and then I would always play Harry too I would always go on the form and like claim Harry I don't know why I like playing guys but and if I got the opportunity, I would play all three of the trio. Oh, it that'd be really, cool. It was really fun. Sounds like it was a very slippery slope for you. <laughs> well, what, like I just <laughs> fell into the obsession. Yep, you just jumped right on the train, and you were out of there. Yep. It's yeah, good, it was a poison. It, it's, it's, I mean, it's amazing. And I, I was all over MuggleNet. Well, it's, it's always nice to hear that. Um Gosh, I, that takes me back though. That story I used to role play as uh, Sirius and Lupin. Yes. Um, back in oh. back in chat rooms, uh, it was never on any forums for it. But that's so back cool. Back in chat rooms when those were when AOL was still a thing. I know. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And that I feels used to... like two lifetimes ago. I know. Yeah. It's like a whole ten years ago. It's it's kind of crazy. I'm like mm. a whole different person now. It's weird, but. i mean it feels like that right if you think back 10 years like what you were doing 10 years ago and like who you were as a person Mm -hmm. yep indeed but we're delighted to have you in this present incarnation with us here on (laughs) nogamora thank you yeah i felt like it was something that i had to do like an homage to my younger self i was like i need to be (laughs) on this harry potter podcast i listened to this episode of nogamora is dedicated to jessica's younger self (laughs) We made it in just in time because we're getting close to the end. That's true. I know. I was like, I need to just, you know, puck up the courage and do it. Yeah. And I'm so glad that I did it because I'm really excited to be here. Good. Happy to have you. Definitely. Yay. And before we move forward, we want to remind everyone that for this week, we are going to be discussing Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows chapter 29, The Lost Diadem. So make sure you read that before we get into the chapter discussion. And uh, in order to give you all time to go read that chapter, here we are talking about last week's uh, chapter discussion, uh, which happened on last week's Alohomora 179, and uh, it was about the chapter, The Missing Mirror, if I'm remembering correctly. So our first comment comes from I Got Transfigured Into a Rhubarb, who says, uh, in response to the very uh, well-praised discussion last week, uh, had by all of the hosts. There are a lot of parallels with autism and Ariana. I certainly praise Michael for talking about his brother Charlie. I do also see a lot of parallels with multiple sclerosis. Like J.K. Rowling, I too also have a parent with MS, and I had 
also a grandparent who was in a hospital with MS because my mom was no longer able to care for her. Like autism, MS also has a spectrum of varying types, but have several particular traits in common. Anxiety, panic attacks, and depression, to name a few. Like Dumbledore, I had to grow up quickly to help my mom look after my dad and protect my brothers and sister when my dad was having a meltdown and outbursts of violent rage. I certainly don't hate Dumbledore for wanting to escape. It's a huge shoulder of responsibility taking care of a disabled relative. I think J.K., depicts Dumbledore as a human being who had no choice to grow up quickly uh, and face putting his life on hold. I had to, and I expect she had to as well. It's a big decision to make. It's left me with a tough skin and high expectations of people to just get on with it and do a job. I didn't have time to discover myself, and the only way I could do that was by breaking away. I still have the tough skin, but I know who I am now. Wow, thank you for sharing that with us. That's... Thank you very much. Wow. Yeah. That um, makes a lot of sense. Right. I, and I, I think just combing through the comments, too, people were very moved um, and had nothing but praise for the discussion that happened in last week's Aloha More, and it's always very pleasant when we can reach that sort of um, har- harmonic point with everybody where you know we just have a really well-hashed-out discussion. It's very rewarding for us to to see an episode that's received so well as that one was. I feel like personally, um, I actually have a really hard time commenting on Ariana because I personally haven't had any experiences with disabled people, really. I mean, there's, besides Charlie, I don't know anybody who has a relative. So personally for me, while I understand where this whole argument is coming from and all the parallels between, you know, artism and Ariana. For me, I just have a hard time understanding it, but I always try to. I always listen to it and and try to understand, you know, where it's all coming from, so. But I think, you know, we, we, we have a lot of respect for those who are dealing with this uh, on, a da- on a daily basis. Um, it's really nice to find that in the Harry Potter books there are characters that touch people. I mean, we knew this from day one of reading it for ourselves, but so many different characters and so many different reasons for touching um, the readers and seeing that Ariana represented something so powerful to uh, all these all these people. Mm-hmm. I think what makes it really, really effective with the way Joe does it is she, and I think this comment really captures it, and Michael talked about it, is it's just she writes it in a very real way. Um, we mm-hmm. don't just see, you know, a very um, basic representation of what disability can be because that's just not possible to do. It's just such a complex thing. And we see Ariana unravel over this whole book what her actual story is, and we finally get it toward the end of the book um, and see how it affects not just Albus but also Aberforth and how it just really is a thing that people really struggle with on really different in really different ways on really different levels and. Um, it's good that it can speak to people that way. We have a comment now from Have a Biscuit Lupin. <laughs> um, love these usernames. That's amazing. Uh, and this is on a the ever cheery, mysterious subject of Aberforth and the goats, which finally got the discussion that it deserved on last week's episode also. So uh, I think that uh, the comment is, I think that Aberforth was always very lonely as a child and that goats were his only company. 
As an adult, he had to deal with the death of his sister and the successes of his brother. He was still in the shadow of his family and lonely. I have always imagined that Aberforth tried to charm the goats to give them greater intelligence. Huh. So that they could talk with him, so that they could really be his friends. Aberforth is such a gentle person, and I've kind of seen this uh, as more consistent with his character, although it would also be natural that assumptions would be made by other characters. I also think that doing something like this would have to be illegal in the magical world, so it explains his imprisonment as well. What? Bo boom! Uh, somebody, a lovely reader, Have a Biscuit Lupin, has stepped in and presented a non-sexual alternative <laughs> for what oh Aberforth could have been doing with the goats. But, I, I mean, did they have goats? Well, yeah, Dumbledore's? Didn't they? They, they did. Um, in their in the backyard previous, or something? Yeah, in the previous chapter, Aberforth was talking about how he and Ariana would feed the goats. Oh, okay. So I think they, the Dumbledore's had a couple goats um, at their homestead. Now I'm just thinking of it as like a ranch, but <laughs> they just they had some goats. So they were definitely present. But, you know, I, I actually like this comment a lot for uh, the fact that it is vague. We don't know. And I, I do believe that trying to make... To trying to imbue an animal with near human intelligence would probably have to be against a law or two or three. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I support this. I think it's a little odd and, and delightful as a result of that. Which is kind of Aberforth, right? Odd and delightful? Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure I'd use delightful, but definitely odd. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, and I, I as for the, the first part of the comment that states that he was probably very lonely... Um, and in the shadow and would have looked towards the goats for some emotional companionship. That's an, yeah, it's just an interesting, Aberforth continues to be such an interesting character. And, you know, this chapter, this previous chapter, he serves a very specific function, um, as sort of like calling into question, uh, his brother and all this other stuff. But, you know, him as a person is, is still one of those like great mysteries. Um, there's a lot about him that I was like really looking forward to seeing on Pottermore. I see this being actually really plausible because if the goats were a family pet, everybody's close to their family pets. I mean, unless they don't like them, but clearly Aberforth <laughs> likes the goats, so. Yeah. You know. No, I, I agree. And look, I, I think all that was ever said in the books was uh, for practicing illegal charms on a goat. I mean, right. that could be anything. And so. of course, because we're all disgusting humans, we took that <laughs> yeah, as a sexual thing. Constantly right. in the gutter. <laughs> yep. We we just don't know. But it's funny. I mean, I think at one point, Dumbledore himself uses it as like a punchline. In fact, yeah, that's where that quote comes from. Mm -hmm. I think he's talking about it at a dinner party or something. So if he can talk about it in a public setting, it mustn't be all that bad. Right. That's interesting, um, though, because I never thought I like I never once thought like, oh, he probably charmed them to have more intelligence so that he can talk to them because he's a lonely kid who loves his animals, you know, and how, normal people like they. I mean, I'm not crazy. Like, I talk to animals sometimes, too, right? Like, people usually do that when you're close to an animal. You kind of just talk to them and pretend that they can respond or hear you. But that's interesting to think that he went, like, a step further and gave them um, intelligence to, like, communicate back in a way. Mm -hmm. I constantly wish my cats could talk back to me. That would be amazing. You know what? Although now that we're now that we're talking about this, also yes, cat. I I wish your cats could talk too. Um, but but there's this quote 
uh, from Albus that I just found. Uh, it requires a source, but it's from Wikia, where it's called into question whether or not Aberforth could even read. Do you remember that? Yes. <laughs> oh my God, says, I remember that. You remember he says he's not sure his brother could even read? Yes. Um, it, uh, let's see. Here's the quote. My own brother Aberforth was prosecuted for practicing inappropriate charms on a goat. It was all over the papers, but did Aberforth hide? No, he did not. He had, he held his head high and went about his business as usual. Of course, I'm not entirely sure he can read, so that may not have been bravery. Hmm. Taken into the context of book seven now, and especially the last chapter, the sort of heavy discussion that Aberforth uh, has had with Harry and, and the whole trio. I'm actually, actually, I think it's easy to be offended by, by that quote from Dumbledore in, in retrospect, right? Cause like, I think that we all think that Aberforth can read. Um, yeah. And is certainly like much more intelligent than Albus was giving him credit for. I realize it was a joke, but I think it kind of cheapens, who Aberforth is as a person now that we're getting to know him a little bit better. I'm a firm believer that even when you're joking about something, a small part of you believes what you're saying. Yeah, mm. so, I believe that um, too. I do believe that, you know, he probably somewhere deep down could have possibly thought that even a little bit. <laughs> so it's Dumbledore's own superiority complex showing through. Right. to his Not uncommon. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially regarding siblings. Yeah, um, Definitely. And uh, our third comment comes from a username that time Remus Wadi Wasid Voldy. It's a good one. <laughs> I love saying Wadi Wasid. Wadi Wasi. <laughs> You're right. That is fun. I get to do that more often. And the comment is, I don't think this is a test of faith in the typical sense on Aberforth's part, meaning the conversation. I read this conversation as his attempt to, ter- to determine if Harry is merely blindly following Albus's orders without knowing the full scope of things, or if Harry actually believes in the course of action set forth by Albus. He wants to know that Harry has had doubts, and in turn, reason enough to overcome those doubts. Aberforth gives Harry more information, the truth behind Albus's story, so that Harry can put the pieces together himself in hopes that he makes a as fully informed a decision as possible. He wants to know that Harry is proceeding because Harry himself believes it is right to do so, knowing full well the potential dangers, not just out of blind willingness because Dumbledore said so. As the hosts discussed, Aberforth has good reason for his misgivings. If he is to commit to aiding Harry in the battle that lies ahead, he needs Harry to give him good reason as to why he should put his own faith in Harry. To me, he isn't just asking why Harry should trust in Dumbledore, but also why he, Aberforth, should trust in Harry. I think that I, is such a good point. I love this comment. This me is great. too, because, you know, um, Aberforth comes with a predetermined set of uh, a bias, basically, against Dumbledore and mm-hmm. anything that he says, thinks, feels, does, whatever. So once he finds out that Harry is acting on Albus's word, I think it's very natural for him to want to kind of suss out, you know, Harry's true intentions here. I right. think that's a really great point. Mm-hmm. And, and again it's sort of a testament to Aberforth's intelligence I mean he's really getting to the bottom of this guy and and making sure that Harry knows what it is that he's doing I see this scene so differently I just never saw it as a test of Aber- see, see it as a scene of Aberforth testing Harry I just always saw it as 
Aberforth genuinely thinking Albus did Harry wrong and there's no reason that Harry should be following through with his plans. He needs to get away. And then like Aberforth coming later to help him, I feel is Aberforth coming to terms with his own emotions, feeling like he finally does need to step in despite his like bitterness of over his relationship with Albus. So I just, I, I think it's a well thought out comment. I just always see the scene so differently. Well, I think with the history that Aberforth has, he has been helping Dumbledore's army, for instance, like all this time, Harry points out in the previous chapter, he's in the order of the Phoenix. Like he's already pretty committed in spite of how he feels about his brother, uh, to, helping and the good cause and all of that i think it's like i think you like him more if you see this scene as sort of a test versus i mean it is an opportunity either way for him to shout and spout out about what he does why he doesn't love his brother why he doesn't like his brother and it's a really important info dump for us as readers who never got this story before but i think also I, i do see it as sort of really getting to the bottom making sure harry knows what he's doing what do we think Aberforth did for the Order? Because we don't really know, do we? I thought it was... I thought it was kind of weird how he kind of kept under the radar. I wonder why he did that. He was definitely spying. Um, and he doesn't necessarily need to leave his place of business uh, to do that. If you'll recall, there were a couple of times, I think even in Book 1, uh, with Hagrid and the Dragon Egg, uh, that essentially they... Think of it as like a shrieking check thing where Dumbledore put a lot of effort into giving that building its bad reputation. And I think that probably Aberforth and Albus worked to build the reputation of the Hogshead as a less reputable pub where uh, darker people under the watchful eye of Aberforth would naturally be drawn to. Wouldn't that be really difficult to be a spy in his own pub, though? Think about it. A Death Eater comes in, or two Death Eaters. They sit down, and they're having a fire of whiskey, and they're talking about some evil plan, okay? Mm-hmm. So Everforth relates that information to the Order, and the Order acts on it. Wouldn't they find out pretty quickly that Aberforth was a leak? I'm right, not like sure. How else, would, how else would their plans have been, like, known, you know? Yeah. Well, there's evidence in... Um... The, the Snape situation with the prophecy with Trelawney, like Al- or Aberforth caught Snape listening at the keyhole, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd also argue um, that he's very careful with what information he would lead off of. For instance, I mean, a teacher at the school having a dragon, obviously very important. But in the previous chapter, um, he yells at the other Death Eaters talking about their, like, Illegal potions or something, right? Illegal potions, yeah. Poisons, he yeah. completely allows like illegal activity in his pub, and I think that's what earns him the trust. Like he basically is only is like holding out and looking for the most terrible actionable items. He he he's I think well we know that Aberforth's kind of washy wishy washy with the the law himself, so I think that that really works in his favor. Plus, it's good because it kind of, it it lets him have something on them just in case he needs that, you know? Yeah, so I... Yeah, a little I, blackmail. I, you know what I mean? Yeah, like blackmail, exactly. Yeah. 
and because his hands aren't entirely clean, it's he's sort of the perfect guy to do that sort of job. Yeah, my guess is I, I don't think he ever really traveled abroad for the Order. I just imagine he is, like, nobody, very few people know he's Dumbledore's brother, which is a super good disguise, or that's a good fact. And uh, he's just a barman at this uh, less-than-reputable pub. Which I still find a little unbelievable that very few people know he's Dumbledore's brother. I mean, Albus's brother, because they look similar. Yeah. As yeah. has been pointed out numerous times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's it's so interesting. I think that with Dumbledore, it's just that he has this aura about... Aura? Is that the right word? Aura? About him, it's like... Aura? aura? aura. Yeah. Aura. I, can't, I keep wanting to say aura. I mean... That's not... <laughs> yeah, it can be said either way. I say aura, so... He has this aura about him, <laughs> uh, straight from the aura's office. Uh, Dumbledore, when Dumbledore's in a room, it's Dumbledore, and everybody knows there's Dumbledore, and 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 that is there's probably a crowd, right? And people, I, I just I think it's how I think it's all in body language and how they carry themselves, honestly. Um, because even if they were still both still alive and in the same room, um, but didn't know that they were in the same room with each other, they would just they would look completely different in how they're carrying themselves. Um, I don't know. I think something like as simple as body language could be a complete like what's disguising the public from realizing that. Plus, you wouldn't think that the brother of the most powerful man and wizard in the world would be just some barman um, hanging out at a bar. So I suppose that's true. Hiding in plain sight. He's just hunched over and hiding his face. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the whole time like it does have there is some long like, here you go. stringy yes long silver string hair mm-hmm. um in front of his face so his there cloak. you go uh well that uh does conclude our comments uh on our chapter discussion from last episode um definitely the discussion is still continuing over on our a little more main site and our forums as well so definitely go check that out um and many more comments could not be included uh, due to time, but thank you all for uh, writing and who were having a discussion. So I guess now we'll move on to our podcast question of the week responses from last week. Before Whoop. we jump into those, let me just remind you real quick of the question. So this is the chapter where the final pieces of Dumbledore's story comes to light, thanks to candid reveals by Aberforth. Aberforth and Harry represent the two extremes of belief in Dumbledore. Was he a puppet master, sacrificing lies for the quote, greater good? Or did Dumbledore in the meaning of the, quote, greater good evolve into something more enlightened? How has your personal view of Dumbledore evolved from your initial read to now? Our first comment here comes from Crimson Phoenix, and it says, I don't think Dumbledore's meaning of the, quote, greater good ever really changed or evolved. I think Dumbledore himself and his situations have changed, but I think his main stance has remained the same. We see Aberforth's definition for his brother's greater good as a failed ideology that resulted in the traumatic death of a sister he was much closer to than Albus ever was. And we see Harry's mentors, greater good, as ultimately finding peace for the wizarding world through noble sacrifice and doing what must be done. I think Harry's perception of Albus's stance is closer to the true nature of Albus's will. He always made sure that there was a balance between the necessity of control and the free will of others. For example, he was aware of the responsibilities of the wizards over the muggles if wizards were to ever come to power, and he knew that he had to let Harry test his strength just enough to learn what he needed to learn without dying in the process. The older he grew and the more experience was added, the more he changed and grew as a person. But I think that one ideology has been the driving force throughout his life. 
I think it's very interesting. This is definitely a question of perspective and to, first of all, for, for us to say, okay, these characters at opposite ends of it and then have Crimson Phoenix talk about each of their perspectives. I think it was very insightful. I really like this comment. Interesting to say that um, while Dumbledore's meaning of the greater good never really changed, but he himself changed in the situations that he was going through, that his life had gone through, which I think is probably pretty true. Yeah, I think that's true because then it makes more sense that him trying to work a greater good later in his life with Harry it still has some really problematic elements to it, similar to how he was in the beginning with Grindelwald. Um, while he like knew there was a responsibility to like make it not be terrible outcome, there was always that risk. And similarly with Harry, that's a problem and a risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a big discussion last week about is it okay for a few lives to die for the greater good? And um, I thought that was a really good conversation. Do you guys have thoughts on that? I mean, I know we've talked about it a little bit, but. It's it's actually super funny because there's a Dear Hogwarts letter out today from Harry where it talks about that. It's really timely. Um, I mean, I, I think that it is, it ultimately has to be okay or acceptable. They're, they're, in the real world, there have to be sacrifices. There are ultimately not any one side in any protracted conflict is going to get away scot-free and completely without death. And I, I think that there has is and has always been a place for martyrs and sacrifice in the line of um, what is good and what is true and pure. I mean, the board game's not called Risk for no reason, right? Right. It's it's ultimately like death is a part of life and war, unfortunately, is also a part of the same thing. Um, so I, I, I do think, honestly, that now uh, what the difference between with what Harry is having done to him by Albus is that it becomes a question of, okay, you're sacrificing people, but are they consciously aware of the fact that they're being sacrificed? Right. That's where it comes into sort of the gray area between what Dumbledore did to Harry versus if Harry were to be sacrificed for the greater good and he knew that up front before the scene in the forest, I think he would have a, a much altogether different opinion of the whole situation. Like, people willingly fight for the Order of the Phoenix against Voldemort. Those, And that's a different situation entirely than what Harry's going through. Well, I mean, doesn't Harry know exactly... I mean, he pretty much knows that at this point, doesn't he? Because of that chapter in Order of the Phoenix? Maybe. He says it He says it last... Not to this, this week's chapter, but the previous chapter, I think. Or it could be in this one. Um, but he, like, recognizes that he may not survive in the end. So... Right. I, I think he recognizes it, but I don't think he really comes to terms with it until the very end, which is what Dumbledore was planning all along, which makes sense because I don't think Harry would have been able to really go through with it, maybe. I don't know. I don't think he would have really been able to go through with it um, if he had found out sooner. Or if he did, he probably would have had a much harder time walking into that forest. Yeah, I guess it's the difference between knowing about it, accepting it, and acting on it in a way, mm -hmm. really. Because he's known about it for a while because of the prophecy. 
he knew that eventually one of them was going to have to die. But it wasn't right. until he got to kind of this point and a little bit later on when he was like, okay, it, it, it could be me. It, and it becomes well a reality, be you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Where it, when you're younger you're and you're further away from, like, that final moment, it kind of seems like, oh, well, I mean, it, it might not happen. It probably won't happen. Maybe it won't happen. Oh, well, it's going to happen. Finds out, all he finds out when he's 15 is that one of them must die, right? Neither can right. live while the other survives. Mm-hmm. Both of them but, end up having to die a little bit. So, yeah, right. it's, yeah. Well, in this situation when he was 15, in order to, is very different. Dumbledore was alive. He was at Hogwarts. There were no Horcruxes. Very different situation. Significantly less scary, although That's true. still, and it still scary. Freaked, and it still freaked him out. He was it like, did. shit, I might die. Right. Exactly. <laughs> well, I'm definitely going to butcher the username for this next comment here, but I'm going to give it a go. Um, I believe that it's pronounced as Woken Shudaduo. Is that what we decided, I think? Um, I, anyway, in a, in a segment please, that was um, cut that lasted 20 minutes, yes, that was what we decided on. <laughs> please, like, spell it out phonetically for us so we know how to say it. Anyway, the comment says, I don't believe Dumbledore ever got past the notion of the greater good. However, as he grew older, his understanding of what constitutes the greater good evolved and matured. He realized that subjugating muggles under wizard kinds was not for muggles' own good, but for his own good, and was wrong. But he still manipulates his followers significantly to achieve the greater good of defeating Voldemort. I, I, I actually, I like this idea, um, and I would tend to agree with it. Like, Dumbledore con- continuously operates under the whole greater good umbrella. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is evidenced as well by the chapter um, in the phrase uh, Secrets and Lies, right? Which comes yep. up. So uh, I, I think that that is this notion that it's a little underhanded and you wouldn't tell people the full truth if you weren't trying to manipulate them and if you want to manipulate people but still want to be seen as uh morally correct then you have to use phrases like it's for the greater good right now dumbledore was a gryffindor right mm-hmm. yeah does that suit him i i mean i would probably put him in ravenclaw but I, I was just about to say that if I were to choose another house, it would probably be Ravenclaw. I think he fits into Gryffindor. I mean, I think there's this like bold and brashness in the way he he thought of the greater good and what that meant and what they needed to do. There's something about like taking that upon yourself um, and feeling the need to act upon it in a very bold way, in a questionable way even. So I think it's really, really Gryffindor. See, I would probably put him somewhere between um, Ravenclaw and Slytherin myself. Really? Yeah, because, I mean, he is incredibly smart, but he's also a master manipulator. Both houses are, are known for manipulation. Um, oh. But he's incredibly ambitious, too. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I people always talk about the bravery of Snape. Uh, right, right. And that has come out, and you're like, oh, bravery being a Gryffindor trait, but Snape was as Slytherin as they come. But, like, also what Dumbledore did his whole life was pretty brave. I mean, he was a leader. He was probably, arguably, the best headmaster Hogwarts had ever had up to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of, like, bold, brash qualities to him that I think are, are pretty important, but a lot of what Dumbledore did in the earlier books, too, when he was doing the most brave stuff of his career and his life was all off screen because it wasn't part of the plot of the books. Yeah, and the stuff that he did must have 
been extremely hard and, you know, taken a lot of courage to do. I, I kind of just naturally always saw him in Gryffindor. I don't know if that's actually true or false. I mean, Dumbledore is the opposite of Voldemort, and Voldemort is so Slytherin. So you're like, yeah. oh, okay, so opposite Gryffindor being but, opposite of Slytherin. But how right, can you, you say that they're opposites just because one didn't kill people? Probably they're, no, opposite. They're, well, they're like, opposite sides of the very, like, very basic black and white. Of yeah, it's light, like dark. one is good, one is evil, right? Yeah. I know it's a lot more complicated than that, but in the very I wouldn't way personally seen, put them that far apart. Yeah, but. no, and I, and I think that's a very interesting discussion to have. Uh, I I wouldn't necessarily disagree at all. I wouldn't say that they don't have things in common. I think you know Dumbledore and Voldemort. All right. Well, I guess we'll we'll I'm sure we'll we will eventually get there, or that'll make a really great podcast question of the week. But we'll go back to our our last comment here from last week's episode, which comes from Nina. It says, My impression is that Dumbledore is the one character that J.K.R. often subordinated to plot. When he subjects his students, and Harry in particular, to unnecessary risks or is distant to Harry throughout the hardest year of his life, I could never shake off the feeling as a reader that this was completely out of character and just there so the action could unfold in a certain way. As a result, I cared a lot less for Dumbledore than those characters that felt real and never like a plot device. Finding out that Dumbledore's tragic childhood and youth in the final book changed that. I feel compassion for him, not trusting himself with relationships anymore. I'm upset for him for some of the choices he made later in life, and my annoyance at his frequent praise of his own intelligence is tampered by the recognition that wisdom was something he had earned through suffering. Overall, I just care about Dumbledore now. I love this comment. Yeah, I thought it was a really great angle because you often, when we talk about characters, we don't often talk about them through the lens of J.K. Rowling's writing. And I thought this was a great point. I really agree with a lot that she's saying. I I can't identify with not caring um, about him as earlier on that this, that Nina struggled with um, and some like pieces of, yeah, I mean, well, yeah, she said she just didn't care about him as much. I definitely didn't struggle with that as much early on, but I do think that um, the commentary on the end, of the way this really just captures so much about him, just in such a short amount of time, just such impactful text and stuff we learn about him, um, that changes things a lot for people with Dumbledore. And I like it, too, because Joe has said before that Dumbledore is her, and she is Dumbledore. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what does that really say about Joe? She's a when crazy manipulator. We talk about how much we care about Dumbledore. <laughs> it's all for the greater good. We're being used, <laughs> manipulated. Oh, I don't mind being um, used by J.K. Rowling. I, I do like that. I, I will say Dumbledore, and from this comment, the um, his frequent praise of his own intelligence. I, I think that's a purely Dumbledore thing. I don't think Joe, like I haven't ever seen Joe do that to herself. So. No, I do agree with that wholeheartedly. Yeah. So, yeah. so I will say like that's that's a trait that's firmly Dumbledore's. Um, and yeah. even when Dumbledore does that, I, I feel like it's kind of half-hearted, jokingly, like, teasing about it. Like, I don't think he actually praises himself in 100%, like, is giving himself um, compliments. Do you know what I mean? I think, I think he's a little, like, I, I don't think he, val like, 
thinks that he himself is like infallible. I think that he was very aware of the grief that he's caused others in the past. So I don't think he yeah. like is arrogant, but the problem is when he gives himself those little pats on the back, whether in conversation with others or just to Harry, he's never wrong, really. It's like he is the smartest man in the room pretty much at all times. So any jokes are still a little bit inappropriate to make because it's like, well, you are that guy. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. And Harry just wants a mentor. He looks up to him so heavily. Um, so it's it's kind of, I don't know, rereading the series and just kind of counting all the times that uh, Dumbledore praises himself would be very interesting to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and just going back to the, his whole greater good thing throughout his life, um, I, I remember I did comment on the forms about it a couple weeks ago, just about how, <clears throat> like for me, I, I feel like after learning about Dumbledore's story and his life and his childhood and his stuff with the greater good, with Gellert, and I, I feel like that he definitely grew keeping the whole greater good thing that they created together, except I feel like both of their greater goods kind of turned into two different greater goods with different beliefs behind them. Um, Like when Dumbledore got older, I feel like his greater good was different and changed. Um, You know what I mean? Compared to like what Gellard wanted. Yeah, that's definitely a thing that happens between friends. You know, you can... Mm -hmm agree on something and be working towards a common goal and then something happens in your life and it just completely changes your not only your opinion of that other person but any goal that you were working towards may completely change after that so and given the fact that albus was in love with him yeah i I think that the men the men were had very drastically different ideas of how to achieve the means um that they were looking for and that's where it, it all kind of went to to hell agreed Well, there we go, guys. That is our recap from last week's podcast question of the week. As usual, you know, keep the conversation going. There's lots and lots and lots of good comments over at alohamora.mugglenet.com. So go over there and join the conversation. Before we continue, we want to remind our listeners that uh, their Alohamora is now on Patreon. And in fact, this episode of Alohamora is sponsored by Crystal Feidler. Um, We want to thank you very much crystal for sponsoring this episode Thank and you. to find out yeah yay yay <laughs> and to find out more you can visit uh, our patreon page which is patreon.com slash alohamora you can become a sponsor for as little as one dollar a month and we have very exciting news on the patreon front because our post hallows plans that's what we're doing with this podcast after we hit the end of book seven uh has been revealed uh, to our sponsors ahead of the curve, so or ahead of the t- ahead of time, um, so they get it a couple weeks before we're gonna say anything to the public. Uh, for more on that, visit our Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/Alohomora. Yeah, I have to go jump on that Patreon. Please sponsor. do. <laughs> we'll wait. Do it right now. <laughs> um, but, but thank you to everyone uh, who is who is sponsoring us on on Patreon. It's very and important. Thank you, it really Crystal. Helps. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, indeed. And we are going to move right into this week's chapter discussion. Chapter 29. Which came first, the phoenix or the flame? The lost diadem. So we are finally fully back 
in Hogwarts. It has been a long time since we have seen the trio back in the school, but Neville leads Harry, Hermione, and Ron through a very useful tunnel, and they learn about the horrible things happening at Hogwarts and re reunite with a few other students. Shortly after, other former D Dumbledore's army members return, and many are ready to fight while Harry tries to focus on the bigger mission. Harry sets off to find the Ravenclaw Horcrux. He learns some information, but hit a big spot of trouble. So the first thing is we um, get more time with Neville. We see him at the very end of the last chapter, and Neville is taking the trio through this very um, useful tunnel into, we will see in just a second, the Room of Requirement. Um, Neville casually mentions before they head out that others are coming soon, and we don't get much of it right then, but we find that we find them to show up in just a little bit. But I really wanted to take a second to look at the passage because um, Harry mentions that this is not one of the passages that everyone knew about. Um, Harry learned about secret passages from the Marauders map and Fred and George, who learned it from the map, and that was obviously made by the four Marauders. And this is not on any, not on the map. No one really knows about it. Um, so I'm wondering how old it is and who made it. If this was something set up between Albus and Aberforth. Um, the only thing we really get here in this passage, the text says it looked as though the passageway had been there for years. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this because they got to spout other theories about it last week. And um, I'm excited to I'm excited to give mine because they basically contemplated that Ariana's portrait was always there. And one night when Neville got really hungry, the room of requirement just made the tunnel to Aberforth's pub. And um, I'm actually going to go with that because I think it's incredibly that easy. The room of requirement is very giving. It's a very nice friend to have. That's what the book made it sound like too, right? Like yeah. you read it and you kind of just, it sounds like that's exactly what happened. But that's so, it's just so weird to me. Well, and we've never seen, we've just never seen Hogwarts behave like this. It's its almost as if exactly. to quote the movie, Hogwarts wants us to fight back. Um, <laughs> Hogwarts wants very... us to have a healthy dinner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, food. Hogwarts, yeah. In that case, why doesn't that tunnel just go down to the Hogwarts own kitchens? You know, but. Oh, right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> what? I, what? I will say I, I think it's there's support from the text of this very chapter when Neville is talking about he was sitting around thinking about how he needed food and then this passageway opened up. I th I would also side on on the um on, I would also err on the side of uh, this passageway even though it looks old is actually as new as when Neville first went had to go through it. Like I, I think it's recent. I think that the reason it looks old or looked as though it had been there for years is because that's the kind of stone that uh was probably pulled from somewhere else in the castle uh oh, and also thinking that yeah and also the architecture just in general yeah. of whatever hogwarts own um sentience if you could call it that because the rumor requirement really bridges the gap between like fake intelligence or artificial intelligence or or magical intelligence it can basically decipher anything that you're asking for as we find out later in this chapter but like i i think that it very much just created this for the first time using its own set of parameters and skills which in that case just makes it look like it had, like it's just the british old medieval castle style this um, is very it, creepy though what uh, like imagine just the room of requirement just 
okay, you want food? And it just like carves this tunnel through this stone and rock to his pub. Like what? I don't understand. Well, because it's magic, it doesn't necessarily (laughs) need to be a direct tunnel. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like they're probably, because the rumor requirement is, I'm not using, I don't mean to use the word landlocked because that's wrong, but like clearly it's not necessarily like a direct, you know, tunnel that's going to exist there forever in fact i think the tunnel probably goes away well okay so here's here's Mm -hmm. a few things that i was just thinking about the tunnel that we find about find out about from the marauders map that's been caved in for years where's that go to second question the room of requirements on the seventh floor how do you have a tunnel right (laughs) i mean it would have to go like behind the walls which we do know is a thing because of chamber of secrets yeah, but could you imagine like a tunnel that goes up seven stories? Well, they also Going have down. that uh, the cupboard, right? The 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 staircase behind the cupboard that has a different exit every day. Um, in this chapter, when they leave the room requirement, yeah, like that's so, one of the points that's a little that's farther true. down. But like, yeah, we see. I think a big thing in this chapter is we see the expansive power of the room of requirement that we've never really seen before. And like the question I had, and we can go ahead and get into this now a little bit, is. Is it consistent with the room of requirement that we have seen over the previous six books? Or is this like just a dramatic change that isn't very believable? Or is it believable because Hogwarts is really just responding to this, like, it's responding itself to being attacked by these, like, terrible forces? I, I remember feeling after reading it the first time that this was so, like, so much of a dramatic difference in the rumor requirement how it was behaving what the parameters might be like essentially it's like it knows that it can't produce food and then it also knows that uh aberforth is a friend of hogwarts and that it would be safe to build a passageway to the hogshead where is a it's 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 an establishment where you can get food like there's just so much like it's such a reach it's reaching all the way to hogsmeade from hogwarts there's such a reach in in and the scope and such an increase in the rumor requirements power. I remember disliking it. Now I read it, and I read it uh, this chapter like twice today to prepare, and I just think, wow, what a cool room. <laughs> like, who, how cool is it that they built this thing that can do this? I'm much less bothered by it, but I remember it being very shocking at first. Yeah. I'm, I'm the total opposite. I always thought that it was really believable, actually, given everything that the DA was just given back in back in book five. The only thing that gets me is the fact that it's on the seventh floor. And you can't have a tunnel that goes into midair. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it just, can. I mean, I know it's magic and all that, but. You can't, yeah, but that's exactly what you could, that's why. That's, I mean, they could be, think of the tunnel, what if it's the size of Hermione's bag? But like when they enter it, they're that, like, or like the opposite, where they're like, you know what I'm saying? Like maybe the tunnel is actually like a mouse hole. Oh, I never so thought they of meet, that. They don't realize, like, but they're shrinking down to size when they, you know, you never know. Huh. Okay. That's a cool theory. I dig it. I dig it. I I wanted to point out, too, in the chapter art for this chapter, Neville looks like Peter Pettigrew. Yes, he does. I'm sure it's a And honestly, that's like, if if Neville hadn't been at the end of that last chapter, I would be like, oh, Peter Pettigrew's back, because it doesn't look like Neville. (laughs) That's all. (laughs) I, um... The one thing, actually, while we're talking about the tunnel, though, that bothers me is in the movie, they show the grate 
like the random grate that's on the Hogwarts grounds. So you, mm. it, it's a shot of like the grass on on a hill, and there's this grate, and so you can hear them still continuing their conversation as they gradually make their way to Hogwarts. I understand mm. why it's in the movie, but I I I think that's a super bad, terrible security hazard if that were real. So I don't think it's a, a bookism <laughs> at all. And I was really reading this chapter to see is there any mention of this ridiculous moonlight shining through a grate which would immediately give away their position to anybody who's walking on the grounds well, and would flood the tunnel because it's the uk and it rains like every day and it would flood the tunnel exactly so there would need to be drainage and the room of requirement would need to go beyond it's it's then they'd uh, have to hire a plumber it's just too much work it's too much work the room of requirement doesn't need a plumber it can just plumb itself like the Chamber of Secrets. Before they get to the room of requirement, we're still on the way in the tunnel, however it works. Um, the Car- That the Caros are pretty much in charge of the day-to-day um, classroom, teacher, everything of the school, even though Snape is the headmaster. Um, they're really running the show. Um, but it's good to know at least some of the professors are trying to resist them. Um, and this blatant torture and punishment that is being um put on the, the students um we learned that even the, the students are practicing the cruciatus curse on each other which is just shows just how far things have come which made me think of the board of governors isn't that a thing i mean Luci- lucius was on the board of governors for yeah a it is in year two yeah so mm-hmm. is it all death eaters now Ooh. I wonder. I feel like the ministry is just probably like usurped any power that they formerly had, formerly mm-hmm. had, and now it's just locally run school. Snape runs everything now, right? Yeah, Umbridge like, yeah. That's fair. right? Yeah, maybe maybe it actually went away a lot sooner than we thought. Like in Umbridge, Umbridge's time, like in fifth year, um, something like that. Like having a ministry appointed high inquisitor may. Um, make the positions that the governors would have had obsolete. So I thought the exchange between Ron and Neville was really interesting because Neville is building up all of these horrible things that are happening and also showing, I mean, he's done a really amazing job standing up to the Caros um, and the regime that they put up and he's paid for it. He's got battle scars because of it. And um, he talks about um, standing up to them trying to remember what the specific i should have written it down better i can't remember what he says in this specific moment um but he says something that he stood up to them for and ron um almost rebukes neville he says something like there's a time and a place for it for these sort of things um it's the muggle study yeah and and neville responds the thing is it helps when people stand up to them it gives everyone hope so it was an interesting like dynamic for ron to be the one to be it was almost hermione like um in a way um but i kind of wanted to think who is right here because at at first read you're like wow neville's just being really bold and brave he's really showing his gryffindor side um he's standing up to them so that others have hope but ron really has a point i mean you have to pick your battles in these situations so I kind of wanted to see what you guys thought. It's kind of hard without actually being there. You know what I mean? Like Neville says, you didn't hear her. You would have, you wouldn't have stood it either. Which right. I, I probably agree with Neville because I could totally see Harry or Ron just losing it and standing up for you know what they believe in, and then just getting tortured just like Neville did. 
But I think it's just because they haven't been there this whole time. You know, they don't really know what it's like. They're not really in it, you know? It's it's shocking because, we you know, we praised Harry for his outbursts uh, against Umbridge, and she wasn't even a Death Eater. But now the school's right. actually overrun by Death Eaters, and they are, in fact, at war. I think it's not out of the realm of um, understanding to see, like, if people like Neville were just like, no, we're constantly at war, and I'm going to continue to, I'm going to be a thorn in their side, essentially very Weasley twins-ish of him, to be like, I'm going to be a constant thorn in their sides, like, as much and as often as possible. You know, it's really, it's really cool. You can, from just these first few pages, you can really tell how much Neville has changed. He's really, like, a leader now, and I mean, I've never really taken to Neville's character throughout the books, but I think, like, it always impressed me how he's just standing up and kind of, I think it's cute that he's trying to step in and fill Harry's shoes while Harry's been gone. See, I think it's funny that you say he's filling Harry's shoes because I actually think he's filling Dumbledore's shoes. Because there's nothing that Neville does that Dumbledore wouldn't approve of or wouldn't have done himself. Standing up to people and speaking his mind. And fighting for those that he loves. Because Neville truly loves Hogwarts. Granted, he's had a few hard years there. But I think that he really feels at home there. He's never really felt at home with his grandmother at his actual house. Well, don't you think Harry feels the same way? I do, but in a different way. Because Harry has this whole other responsibility on his shoulders. That as much as he thinks about the other students, um, he doesn't think about them in the same way. Right. He doesn't have the luxury of thinking of everyone else, I guess. Mm-hmm. In this moment, too, that um, when Ron and Neville are talking about the torture and everything, it just reminds me of Ron and Hermione back at Malfoy Manor, too. How he, you know, stood up for her and helped her. Right. <clears throat> so we learn a little bit more of a few characters. We know um, that Luna gets taken um, by the Death Eaters on the Christmas train and that Ginny is not at Hogwarts either because um, she stayed home since Easter. Um, And I'm starting to wonder that, you know, would things have been different for Neville if his parents were still able? They were not in St. Mungo's um, because the effects of the curse. Um, How would they have, how would that have affected the Hogwarts resistance, which is pretty much being led by Neville right now, would they have been the parents to try to get him out? Um, because we know the Weasleys are very involved in the order, yet Jenny is home right now. So I wonder, I mean, it's hard to, you know, play hypotheticals, but more I'm thinking if he would have stayed out, what would have happened to the Hogwarts resistance? I think the major difference between the Longbottoms and the Weasleys is that the Longbottoms were powerful ors and or. They were Aurors, right? Yeah. 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 And, um, and not that Arthur and Molly are not powerful, but I think they're a very different kind of powerful. And I think that while Arthur and Molly would want Ginny to stay home, I feel like Neville's parents probably wouldn't necessarily want him to be there, but would understand if he, if he needed to be there. If he said, you know what, I have to do this. I have to be there. No one else is fighting for them. Harry's gone. I have to do this. And I think that they would 100% support him in that endeavor. I mean, his grandmother is always 
saying, you know, live up to your parents. Oh, yeah, you're your parents' son now. You know, like he talks about it too. And you kind of get the feeling that they're, they're a family like that, you know. They pride themselves in being, you know, courageous and... Proactive. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Not like hiding and being safe. But Not it, that it that's isn't necessarily just, a bad thing, but... It isn't just Neville, though, too, is the thing. Like, it is... It might currently be Neville for the last, what he says, couple weeks, but he points out that he, uh, Ginny, and Luna were sort of the leaders. So he has had uh, uh, some help and, and sort of co-conspirators who were in it as deep as he was. Um, obviously, everyone in the rumor requirement, it's said later, uh, has earned their keep by fighting and, and basically standing up to the Death Eaters that are running the school. But in general, like, I just take it as Neville is the, the guy who's who we have, like, he's our in to understanding what's been going on because we've been away from Hogwarts. But I, I see it as it was an organization that was run uh, equally by he, Luna, and Ginny until each of them were pulled away. Right. Right. In that secondary trio, though, isn't Neville the Harry? Yeah. I yeah. So. And wouldn't you put Neville, sl- I mean, or Harry, like, quote, as the leader of the trio? In some cases. I think no. there are some situations where I think it's Ginny. I think Hermione is the leader of the trio, too. Right, sometimes. but and Ginny would be Hermione. Uh, I'm not. I'm not ready Maybe. to make that comparison. Oh, or yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not on 100% on that. It is a second trio, but it's not necessarily like it could be a different trio. Yeah, you know, yeah. different personalities. Right. We mentioned um, Neville's grandma a second ago, and we learned a little bit about her as well. Um, the Caros slash the Ministry slash the Death Eaters, pretty much one in the same right now. Uh, realize that the one way or think that the one way that they can go after Neville, who keeps defying them at every corner, um, is to go after his grandmother, Augusta Longbottom. Um, it doesn't work. <laughs> they think that they're able, that they're going to be able to stifle uh, <laughs> a frail old woman, but um, Augusta does her work on them and messes them up pretty badly. Um, the Poor Dollish. Yeah, Dollish is always not. getting sent off. Like, <laughs> oh, whatever, Dollish. So he gets sent to... Um, St. Mungo's, and now, um, even though she was able to hold her own, um, Augusta Longbottom is on the run, so it's affecting a lot of people outside of Hogwarts, too, in a lot of ways. I think that's so awesome. I want to have a grandma like that. Yeah. <laughs> and even though, like, the beginning of this chapter, it, I think it does a really good job of summarizing um, everything that happened, there's a real perspective in the way that Neville talks about it. It's it's almost there is like a chronology of who they lost when, and also like it. Re- it re- even though Harry first um, asks about Hogwarts as a deflection because he doesn't want to talk about their mission, uh, you do get this information. Like Neville's more than willing to oblige Harry in in sharing the details. That because basically, even though they've heard about Gringotts and things, they still don't know the full truth. But they're, they've at least heard something. And Harry's just like, "But we haven't heard anything about Hogwarts, so tell us." And then he does. Like, I still would have rather have seen it. I still want like the at Hogwarts version of Book Seven. But ultimately, this is all we're gonna get. And I, I think it does inspire the imagination. Like some of the like the Cruciatus curse on each other. Like that's actually really horrible. Um, if you think about yeah. how much the world has changed, that it was an Azkabanable uh, offense to perform the Cruciatus Curse three years ago. 
and now they're doing it as sort of a way to punish each other almost it's weird Um, they're having children learn it and do it on each other in a classroom like yeah that's it's like the complete opposite of of everything that has come before it so even fake moody didn't go as far as doing it on each other right right i mean he he did it to them but not each other so (laughs) yeah so we finally get into the room of requirement, um, and we see that it has become basically a camping grounds for at least members of three of the Hogwarts houses. We see that there are makeshift beds with house banners for Gryffindor, Ravenclaw, and Hufflepuff. Uh, there's no Slytherin, so that's uh, uh, this always like Come on. yeah. I think felt like you might want to jump in there, Jessica. I, it always like stands I'm out to gonna me. I'm just going to hang my own little banner in the corner, okay, guys? <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Well, like, but she couldn't do, there couldn't be Slytherins in the Room of Requirement and then not be Slytherins at the final battle. I, okay, like, uh, I And because think... she made the decision that there weren't going to be Slytherins at the final battle, there can't be Slytherins in the Room of Requirement. Well, because they evacuated all the Slytherins. They didn't want all the Slytherins, you know, to interfere, you know with everyone who was supporting the school and then all the Death Eaters. So they just, you know, got rid of them completely. But, like, okay, what about the students, Slytherins, who don't necessarily agree with what's going on with all the Death Eaters? Like, all the other houses aren't going to bother to even see if there are any Slytherins that are you know, like, disagreeing with what's going on. But but also, like, imagine if you're in Slytherin and think of the pressure that's put on you to kind of act like you agree with everything and, like, what happens if you speak up or, like, say, like, well, no, I, you know, this is actually pretty messed up. I don't, I don't really... Where's, where's the DA? I kind of want to talk to those people, but they're not going to talk to you because you're a Slytherin. It's, it's like so stereotyped and it's, it kind of sucks. Like, do you know what I'm, do you know what I'm saying? I, I, I agree it completely sucks, but it's, it, it comes down to they're dealing with concepts that are above sort of the 15, 16 year old capability. Yeah, that's true. And they won't take the security risk of sorting out. I, I mean, like, I think. What it, I yeah. mean, they could totally be a spy. You know, they could be well, pretending. And, and look, historically, the Inquisitorial Squad just two years ago made up of like, what, wasn't it 100% Slytherin? Yes. Um, and you're just like, so there's so many bad examples of why they shouldn't trust Slytherins. I mean, if you really want to get a hero, get somebody to put their neck out from Gryffindor or Ravenclaw or Hufflepuff and like actually actively really try and, I don't know, do some polyjuicing, go down to the d- d- dungeons and really try and see who's having a hard time of it, and then get some Slytherins in the room of requirement. But ultimately, I think, and it's a great failing of everybody involved, but I think that ultimately they were distracted by so many other things that I think I have no doubt that what you're saying, Jessica, like that those people exist. There's people who are very not comfortable yeah, I just, in Slytherin. I feel so bad for them. Like, yeah. man. But I mean, they're also, they're, you know, we can't forget that they are still pretty young, you know, and... I don't know. Maybe like, older. 
reading in this chapter that those banners were up and that Slytherin's was absent, I was also just thinking I couldn't help but think of the room requirement versus like Chamber of Secrets. Like Salazar Slytherin built his chamber for his house, uh, although really it was his his heir. But like it just made me think more and more and more about the room requirement and its origins, who made it, who built it, if the founders had anything to do with it, if it's something that evolved organically, like hundreds and hundreds of questions. But like seeing those banners, I'm like, well, did the founders then respond, like in response to Slytherin's chamber, just decide to build a really cool room that would do whatever you wanted (laughs) it to? And is it naturally suited? Is it better suited to the temperament of the people in those other houses that aren't Slytherin or <laughs> I mean I always I always I, I think that's really funny and kind of cute to think about um but I always just assumed that the room created those banners because you know different houses were showing up like oh Hufflepuff's well, yeah. here you know there's your little corner and I'm pretty I'm pretty sure like it, I mean, it would have been very odd, but if some Slytherins did like come over, I'm I'm pretty sure they would have had their banner too. I all think. this all this talk about Slytherins reminds me of a tweet that Joe sent out back in May of last year, and uh, it says, "Not all Slytherins think they're racially superior, but all those who do are Slytherins." Hmm. And Ooh. I just remember reading that at the time and thinking, "Wow, that is um, that's ballsy." That's way, so way to way to still put like bigots in one house. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, they're not all pure bloods either. There's not enough families left. First of all, that's true. I mean, that's really cool. I like that a lot. So on the tune of seeing some familiar faces, uh, we have an audio boom that was sent in, so we're going to go ahead and play that now. Shalom. It's BD from the Confundledor episode. This chapter is just about my last chance to make an Anthony Goldstein shout-out. With all of the comparisons between the Second Wizarding War and World War II, Death Eaters and Nazis, I wanted to recognize Hogwarts resident Jew who took to heart the commandment, never stand idly by while your neighbor bleeds. My question is, which of the, quote, minor characters were you excited to see in this chapter? Thoughts about what actions forced them to seek refuge in the Room of Requirement? Also, really geeked about the news from Patreon. Thanks for an awesome show. All right, so yeah, we definitely get to see a few familiar faces turn up um, before things get crazy. So who were you guys most uh, excited to see here? I'm going to let everybody else go before me. Probably Lee Jordan. <laughs> I was oh, really yeah, excited Lee. to get Lee again. Lee walked in with Fred and George and Ginny. Do you think that he was hanging out with them prior to their meeting at the uh, Hogshead? I hope so. Yeah. I see the three of them as their own little trio. Aw. You know what? I was going to say Luna, but she's not really like a... um. She's not like she's kind of a bigger character, but I okay. So I I actually I don't like Jo Chang that much, but I love Harry's reaction when she walks through. Like it says, Harry's mouth fell open right behind Lee Jordan came Harry's old girlfriend Jo Chang. She smiled at him, and I'm just like, oh my god. <laughs> I Jessica, wonder... I'm gonna. That was mine. <laughs> I was Memories. gonna say Jo Chang too. Really? <laughs> yeah. Cho was also mine. Cho was mine because it sets up the whole area. It's like Jenny Cho Luna exchange. 
Oh yeah, yeah. yeah true. I, yeah, there is that. I can't stand that, but I love I, it. we'll get into it obviously in a moment. But like Cat for fight. me, just Cho, the fact that Cho was there, right? That that Cho was still she still had her galleon. She yeah. got the information and showed up. There's a lot yeah. of there's a lot of admirable qualities in in what Cho is doing here, and for her to just be so summarily shut down by Ginny is very catty and not something that I love at all. Well, it's not about it's being humor. catty; it's about Harry. Eh, yeah, it's about being uh, what's the word territorial over Harry. But that's what um, girls. That's how girls are. I, oh, yeah, I don't I know. Like I think that Cho um, feels bad about how things ended with Harry and that she probably just wanted an opportunity to be alone with him to talk. But she's I don't think denied, it was about territorial. Yeah, but she's, den- she's denied her redemption, essentially. At least at this point in the battle. I mean, the yes, battle hasn't indeed. even begun yet. Um, yeah. But I do like, I just like that she's there. So as far as, mm-hmm. you know, minor character or unexpected character showing up, uh, it's definitely Cho, and I, I think that she really has a lot of good intentions in coming to and risking her life to come to Hogwarts and fight. The yeah. person I'm not surprised isn't there is Cormac McLaggen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that guy. Uh, oh boy. M- more Freddie Stroma in the movie would have been awesome, but I mean, he's not there, <laughs> so it's fine. <laughs> I just wanted to ask is Cormac in the DA? And this was really a weird question. I know he's in the Slug Club, but was he not in? No, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't he think he was either. Ki- so. He wasn't kind of like in the DA. Wait, who? No, I'm thinking Because Cormac Mike is Connor. a book six guy, and I don't even think that... I'm trying to think of the meetings that they had for the DA in book six. Were there many? Like, I don't, I don't think there's a lot of opportunity for Cormac to have joined. No. Okay. Just I when I think I, about old characters, I think about Cormac. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would have been I love. Been I love... Um, the interactions between him and Hermione in the movie just kill me. Yep, he's so brilliant. creepy. <laughs> well, like speaking of former um, relationships, though, like Joe Chang might be there, and we get that response, but we don't get to see Ron's face when Lavender Brown is. Yeah, there. you're that's right. True. Yeah, we don't. Aww. So she's sort of the minor character that shows up, but there's no reaction to her. So no I, I wish you know, there was more of that. Ron's probably like hiding his face. <laughs> he probably doesn't want her to notice that he noticed her. So we mentioned it a little bit um, earlier, but just to get through it, we find some of the more find out more of the magic about the room of requirement now. Um, that apparently, as long as one person stays inside the room, the caros cannot reach them. Um, and just thinking that the like having the thought, I don't want any caro supporters to be able to get in, seemingly is enough to seal it off to people, which is just so funny <laughs> given the way. The room of requirement is given up in Order of the Phoenix um, for the like the first round of Dumbledore's army meetings. Um, we'll just have to take it, I guess. It's just like an expansive set of magic. The room has on the room has undergone some renovations, Caleb. Okay, yeah. I'm skeptical. <laughs> of I think it, they just but... didn't think about that last time. Yeah, I'm skeptical. You know, but... I mean, it... Right here, it makes it seem so easy, though, doesn't it? Yeah, to to code the room to like yeah. come to your side with the well, right thoughts, you know. Well, Neville is obviously a master at it. I actually do believe that part of it, where it's like Neville's particularly good at finding the right wording that's going to become foolproof. I I believe that. I think that he has it in him to have mastered that um, through careful like time, but. I will say, like, we got a lot of this in book six, too. Don't forget Harry trying to get in when Draco's in the room. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we right. kind of really experienced a lot of this. You know, what words did he use to code the room? I always wondered that. I always wanted to know. So um, I thought of something else about um, the dynamic between that Harry starts to face here with the Dumbledore's army members um, compared to how he deals with the order members earlier in the book. Um, So as people start getting in, um, the Weasleys, Lee Jordan, uh, more and more people, and then especially the the students who are there, Neville, um, who is like ready to fight, ready to go. Um, So earlier in the book, we meet we see that Harry met some struggles with order members accepting um, that Harry couldn't tell them everything and that it was his task and Dumbledore gave it to him. Um, We see Lupin struggle with it a lot, and that's a big conflict that happens. Um, We see Bill's conflict um, struggle with it, Summit Shell Cottage recently. And now we start to see similar things go on here. Um, Neville saying things like, we're his army, we're all in it together, we've been keeping it going while you three have been off on your own. Almost this defensive tone. I don't think it ever gets to be a conflict, but there's, it no. definitely gets tense in some moments. Yeah. Because um, mm-hmm. the, the, Neville and the other students have been waiting for Harry. They are ready to go fight now. Um, and then Ron responds to this. It hasn't exactly been a picnic, mate. So, you know, Ron is trying to defend where they've been. They don't really understand. No one understands what the three of them have been going through. So I thought it was very interesting that Joe brings back this overall conflict that Harry has to deal with. And now Ron and Hermione are picking it up more. Um, First, it was the adults in the order. And it's the same thing with the students here. I I love that this argument is brought back. I mean, this is really just this is the one thing where like the whole book, I'm like, this is stupid. Um, You know, Harry needs to accept help. Because there is uh, strength in numbers, and there's strength in there's something to be said for the accomplishments of all of the people in his presence. Like I know that we have the unique insight of knowing what the trio has been through this year, and that they've been through a couple of close scrapes. But in terms of prolonged proximity to direct hands underneath Voldemort, all of these kids have the trio beat. Uh, this year and there is something to be said for that like they have taken the punishment and they have been crafty enough that they're still not been discovered and apparently they're sleeping in these rooms and staying here full time it's not just Neville which is the weirdest thing in the world but ultimately like I think everybody is deserving of the truth at this point and Harry is still not there yet he doesn't quite realize it yet but ultimately there's two things that make him come around, and the first is, I mean, Ron and Harry or Ron and Hermione are just like, well, it might be useful to ask for help. Like, we might actually kind of need their help on this, and and so just the basic fact of, yeah, you don't have all the answers is enough to kind of put one of the final nails in this coffin for him to just kind of come forward and get get off his high horse about Dumbledore just wanted. The, it to be us because I'm tired of hearing that I get sick of hearing that but yeah so I thought it the was, other thing is before you get to that second on. thing I th- just wanted to point out I think it is interesting that again that it's Ron who's kind of like speaking up in these moments where we're used to at least for me it's I'm used to Hermione being the one and Ron's the one that is first to make Harry stop and rationalize um like you yeah. you could use some help here and then it's Hermione who follows him saying you don't have to do everything alone so I thought this there's just some really like interesting small moments for Ron in this chapter that I never really picked up on before. 
I think part of that is is because Ron was out in the world on his own and saw a lot more of the actual struggle than Hermione and Harry did. Because they were holed up camping and Ron was out there dealing with snatchers and disappearances and all of that. So More often. I mean this I but I, I think that. You're totally right, Caleb though. Like this is like a scene in the movie where all of Hermione's jo- or jokes go to Ron or whatever. This is like the opposite, but this is a book scene where all the lines Hermione normally would be saying are said by Ron. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, I do find it weird that Hermione doesn't really say anything this whole time until, you know, Ron says, well, why can't they help, you know? And they should be a little bit more present in general, knowing that Harry's having like some kind of migraine Voldemort thing, too, at the Mm -hmm. moment. Like, he's just like, he can barely concentrate, but he's supposed to defend himself and his choice against everyone in this room who want to know the truth. Um they kind of hang Harry out to dry. Yeah, but I love that it. I love that it is Ron, you know. And I think also one of my favorite parts in this chapter is when Ron just busts out some knowledge, like, "Oh well, you know, Gamp's law of elemental transfiguration." Like, <laughs> who did like, he what? hear that from? <laughs> what? Like, if I was a student there and they had just come back and Ron said that, I would have been so concerned i would have been like ron i think there is a reaction by the students i think there's like one line with everyone is like they're all very impressed with him bias (laughs) oh yeah it says says ron to general astonishment yeah yeah that's like one of the best maybe it was cruel astonishment like you just Mm, said what yeah (laughs) maybe but then yeah you were Um, you were alluding to this i think eric is that the second thing and probably the bigger thing for harry in this moment that really pushes him to finally let people in this stroke it's really been the struggle of the book um it's like been an overall narrative of the book um is he starts to think about um dumbledore and how his biggest problem with dumbledore in this book what made him so angry and he's been going back and forth the whole book up to this conversation with aberforth in the previous chapter um is dumbledore keeping too many secrets and lies and um harry doesn't want to become like that and that's enough to push him to give them not everything um but just enough information which arguably um we've talked about this on multiple chapters this whole book he could have done in previous with in previous circumstances um but he gives enough information here it made me think you know maybe that conversation with Aberforth got to Harry a little bit more than he was willing to let on even to himself um because that was the last time that you know he was really starting to having to struggle with how he felt about Dumbledore he was forced he felt he felt pressured to defend Dumbledore to Aberforth, but at the same time, Aberforth was obviously getting to him. Um, and I think that really comes out here. I agree. And I actually think the the opposite is true as well. I think that that conversation for Aberforth was really important as well, because I think that's the reason he ends up showing up later. Yeah. yeah. So. With one of his goats, right? <laughs> He's, his Patronus, if nothing else. He's writing it. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> now yeah, I just I, see I, him I, like I, riding into the scene on a writing goat. In a, like, I'm battle here. With a goat. It's been like ten years since I read the final battle, so give me a break. Um, but uh, I, I will say, like this act of defiance. I mean, that's that's what it is, right? It's I don't want to be like Dumbledore. Is ultimately what Harry is saying here. He was just, as you pointed out, Caleb. He was true to Dumbledore in the previous chapter, maybe out of what he felt was right, but. He ultimately does like it's it's again this condemning this condemnation of of Dumbledore's practices and like he even goes into Snape and it's just like look at that whole mess you've trusted the wrong people I'm gonna 
just trust an even greater amount of people, but they're all sort of safer in, in some in some key ways. They've sort of proven their their loyalty. Um, right. Yeah. So they Harry. And it's a good thing he does finally open up because without talking to people about things, he would never figured out what the Horcrux ended up being. Um, so he makes a general call to everyone in the room that he's looking for something related to Ravenclaw. He obviously does not say anything about Horcrux. Um, he just makes this general announcement. Um, and who else but Luna immediately responds? I, I mean, it's like instantaneous. And she brings up um, Rowena Ravenclaw's lost item, which makes sense because we saw a reference to that when we were um, at the Lovegood home earlier in the book. But hope is lost for a brief moment because we find out that the diadem is lost. Um, but just as Harry starts to lose faith that this is in fact the Horcrux, Cho Chang, who else, gives a little bit more hope um, by offering to take Harry to the Ravenclaw common room to see what the diadem looked like. Um, it's something, I don't know. It's just like Cho is like the character that picks up on, we can't give up on, you know, this being the thing we're looking for, even though she knows nothing about Horcruxes or what they're doing, but she feels it's important for Harry to see this. So she, she played an important role. I think she picks up on like something that's key to Harry, which is he isn't, he was going to maybe discount the idea of the diadem at this point, but She's like, oh, wait, there's this option where, whereby you can see it. She doesn't know that he's seen the diadem. He's actually laid eyes on it before. Right. Not just touched at the it. Love held it. He's touched it. He's held it. Right. Uh, she doesn't know that. There's, there's no way at all that she could possibly know that. But there's something in the act of seeing and holding, even if it's just a replica, seeing and holding to rule something out. There's something that she, she puts some value on. And I don't know, virginity to just be like, um, no, Luna will show him. I love that. Oh my god, it's fiery so Jenny. I miss that. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's so Jenny oh, though. Really? I mean, that's what I think. It is. Yeah, but like, it come on, so like, Ginny. get over yourselves. Get over your teenage egos. This is the final battle. Like, they don't know it yet, but Voldemort is on his way. I was going to say they don't know that it's the final yeah. battle, and they are <sighs> teenagers. Right. They don't understand. Well, each and every one of them. Eh. The 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 whole thing was Neville told everybody that they were going to fight. Everybody came here knowing that they are going to fight. That was those were his But not words. Voldemort. They thought they were going to overthrow the Caros and Snape. Big difference. Right. Yeah, and they didn't think still, that there I mean, was like a time bigger. crunch on that. Do you know what I mean? It's it's still bigger than the Harry Ginny relationship. I am just saying like it's like Ginny chill out. I love Ginny. I really love and defend book Ginny. 98% of the time this is this is the first time I'm remembering this is the 2% that right, I Right, but like that's behind. good that there's like something about her that I mean that does irk you, right? Because it's very real. Yeah, you're right. right. You're right. So You're 100% right. Yeah, it's it's just old memories and old things coming back, you know, with having those same people in the same room. It's kind of hard for that to not happen sometimes, especially at this age. That's very fair. I I, I just feel bad for Cho. That's all, because um, I don't yeah. I don't think there was anything underhanded in her offering to show no, Harry. I agree. The common room. No, I think it was purely friendly and helpful. Yeah, yeah. she just wanted a chance to talk to him. Yeah, she never really got that chance. No. Nope poor thing <laughs> but whatever with all that happening it ends up being luna who takes harry off to the ravenclaw common room and ravenclaw um fans not i shouldn't say fans ravenclaws period um across 
the world reading this book finally get their moment to go into the Ravenclaw common room. And um, it's funny that even as Hogwarts is super hectic, this is leading up to getting to the Ravenclaw common room, Joe makes Harry kind of tiptoe around the corridors and avoid the same um, problem areas of sneaking about the castle as he always did. And he briefly remarks on, <laughs> he briefly remarks on it, you know, that his heart, he, even though he had been in the hall, the corridors so many times, his heart was racing like it never had before. But we see familiar um, things show up. The suits of armor whose helmets creak at the sound of soft footsteps, they allow the ghosts to pass by, and Harry is very careful to avoid Filch and Peeves, just like he would any other time he's in the Hogwarts. Uh, he's out and about at Hogwarts after hours. I was going to say, this is kind of the middle of the night, right? Yeah. Yeah, I thought so. But it's like such a, you're right, there's like this little nostalgia trip there mm-hmm. yeah. uh, for them. But we get to the Ravenclaw common room entrance, and... It is nothing but a plain expanse of aged wood and a bronze knocker in the shape of an eagle. And Luna walks up and knocks twice on the knocker and gets a question. Which came first, the phoenix or the flame? So it's incredibly interesting the way um, the Ravenclaws get in. Um, We know that Gryffindor and Slytherin get in by passwords. Um, Hufflepuff, it's... They do, don't they? Do a tapping sequence on the barrels, um, something yeah, like that. Yeah, that was on Pottermore. Like um, so they have Gryffindor and Slytherin are very similar, um, and Hufflepuff is kind of its own thing, and Ravenclaw is its own thing. And I like that these two houses are very unique. Um, and I think what was even my favorite line of this like moment is as Luna is explaining to Harry what the setup is. She says, "That way you learn. That way you learn. You see." Which is just such a Luna <laughs> thing, but it's also like, yeah, I totally buy. That's why Rowena Ravenclaw did it. So it's yeah, it's so cute. But in Harry is such a um, a Gryffindor. He's like, I don't have time for this. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you don't have a password. Like that's so much easier. I have to go save the world. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I love. it. I mean, ultimately, like. This is another thing, like, with age. This is better with age, this whole situation. Because at first I was just like, oh, like, Luna, how she gets in is, like, the answer's not an answer. It's like you're in a room with no doors, no windows. Uh, How do you get out? The answer is the same way you got in. It's like, wait a minute. (laughs) That's that's cheap. Yeah, yeah, and I love that it it says like the voice says well reasoned, like it's not like oh good answer. Yeah, you know? right. There right. could have or been like, more oh, than correct. one answer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we get the answer is a circle has no beginning, which is a really really great answer. Um, so they do get into the common room, and the common room just seems like a beautiful place. Um, I was I'm always struck by the, the just the amazing view of the mountains that. The Ravenclaw common room has, which I would just be super envious uh, if I was in another house. And it does sound very pretty. Yep. And as they're going in, we get a statue of white marble of Rowena Ravenclaw, and it's described as she seemed to look back at him, him being Harry, with a quizzical half smile on her face, beautiful yet slightly intimidating. The white marble reminded me of Dumbledore's tomb. 
Oh. Same material. Too soon. (laughs) But I'm wondering, why is she there in the common room? I'm trying to think of other common rooms that have their house founder, like, embodied in, in the room. Like, what is it about Ravenclaw? Is it that she's inspiring? Is she there to really just kind of be actively guiding people towards bettering themselves intellectually. I Is that so. why? A beacon of knowledge. Yeah. yeah, exactly. A beacon, of knowledge. a beacon of knowledge. And I just love this like quizzical smile that in the way it's written because I know exactly in my head what that looks like. Like just you can yes. see it looking right back at you. The mm-hmm. Mona Lisa. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so we see the diadem up on her head um, in the in the marble and Harry <laughs> looks up at the at the diadem and reads the phrase that's on it and it says what beyond measure is man's greatest treasure um, before we get to what the aftermath is this is the first time i've really thought about this is it's kind of surprising to me that it uses man and not something more gender neutral um i don't know for some reason it just seems to me that ravenclaw would have used something i just see her as like a, a, a like a fierce feminist in my mind for some reason and I just, I mean, it just, it's something that rolls off the tongue easily, obviously. I guess I always, I guess I always read that in the man as, you have to think about this was what, the 1800s when they wrote that? Or yeah. 1200s no, or whatever thousand, year it was. A thousand years ago. Right. The and 900s. so that was used as more of a general right. term. Right. Yeah. And I thought, Humans. Right. That's true. Yeah. I, I guess I, I was forgetting like how dated she would have been. Um, so there just wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have wouldn't have happened but i like to think that maybe if it was a little more modern it would have been more <laughs> neutral i totally yeah, agree because yeah, sh- i definitely sure see her as it would have been yeah i get that yeah yeah just a little thought that i've never um, had before but um as yeah. harry reads it aloud um electo caro makes her presence known behind them and um as harry turns around before he's able to grab his wand and do anything she pushes the big bad button of the dark mark Oh, man. I remember that freaking me out. So did she have to answer a riddle to get in? Is she pretty smart? Is that what we're... Wasn't she? She was let in. Yeah. So the funny thing about this is there was, right after Deathly Hallows came out, there was this um, Deathly Hallows in 15 Minutes parody that I revisit every now and then. It is hilarious. I have to dig it up. Um, but there's this scene where Electo and Amicus are trying to get into the Ravenclaw common room and they can't because they can't figure out the answer and they're just screaming at each other. It's, it's, I and that. I think about this all the time. Um, That's incredible. Oh my God. I haven't seen that. Yeah. yeah I'm pretty sure you I can just about that Google Harry Potter in 15 yeah. minutes. It'll show up. It's, it's hilarious. It's a great read. But that's how the chapter ends <laughs> right. as we see Electo Caro... Um, hitting the dark mark and Voldemort will be on his way shortly. It's about Great. to get real. Yeah. Real, real up in here. Real fast. Yikes. <laughs> oh yeah. So here we go. It's time for another podcast question of the week. And this one is on our, our emerging hero, Mr. Neville Longbottom. And the question is as such. Neville Longbottom steps forward in this chapter as a real figurehead and a leader for the students who remain at Hogwarts, both inside and outside the Room of Requirement. And the last time that we saw Neville was actually at Dumbledore's funeral, back in Half-Blood Prince, and we haven't seen him then since then. So Neville states in this chapter that there has been quite a drastic change through which he seems to have really risen to the unique challenge um, 
of becoming a leader and going through the change and everything at Hogwarts and has really excelled. So we're wondering what has been the major motivation for this evolution of Neville into what really we kind of think of as a surrogate Harry. And what do you think that process looked like? So head over to alohomora.mugglenet.com and give us your answers or send us an audio boom and we'll play some of your responses and read some of your responses on next week's episode. Cool. I'm looking forward to reading those replies. Me too. I love talking about Neville. I really do. Yeah. The could have been. I, I, f- I forgot just how cool he is uh, until reading yeah. this chapter. So there you go. But uh, it was such a pleasure discussing this chapter and especially with our guest host, Jessica. Thank you, Jessica, for joining us. Yeah, of course. This, this, has, been, this has been incredible. I'm, I've really enjoyed it. This is so fun. <laughs> Well, we're glad that you enjoyed it and you're able to make it on. And if you would like to be on the show like Jessica, there are spots available as we're closing up the last few chapters of Deathly Hallows. Just head over to the Be On The Show page at alohamora.mugglenet.com. All you need are just some simple headphones and you will be all set. There is no fancy equipment needed. And if you want to keep in touch with us in the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at alohamoramn, facebook.com slash Dumbledore. We're on Tumblr at MN Alohomora Podcast. Instagram is Alohomora MN. Our website, of course, as we've said a few times, is alohomora.mugglenet.com. And don't forget to grab your free ringtone while you're over there checking it out. And as always, you can send us an audio boom, which is free. All you need is an internet connection and a microphone. Head over to the website, again, alohomora.mugglenet.com. Click the little green button in the right-hand menu and leave us a message under 60 seconds and you could hear it yourself on the show. Uh, yes. Also, we sell stuff. <laughs> Great. <laughs> uh, check out our check out our fantastic, uh, tried and tested, proven, exciting, uh, very 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 splendiferous uh, Alohomora store over at alohomora.spreadshirt.com, or you can just go to our website alohomora.mugglenet.com and click on store at the upper right. Yes, that's right. We sell stuff. Go There's going to be a single flip-flop on there since Micah bought just one last week. So. <laughs> I'll buy the other, okay? Perfect. Micah, Perfect. we found you a match. <laughs> also, make sure yeah. to check out our smartphone app. You can download it for free. Just search Podcast Source in your phone's app store. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of Alohomora. I'm Caleb Graves. I'm Eric Skull. And I'm Kat Miller. Thank you for listening to episode 180 of Alohomora. Open the portrait of Ariana Dumbledore. So, how would you say that username? Ooh. Walk and shoot I do. <laughs> Wait a minute. Walk, Walk and, and shoot. shut a duo? I have no idea. <laughs>
walk-in shooter ju- shootai duo shootai duo shootai duo walk-in shootai duo Caleb's good at pronunciations how would you yeah, say I'm that I'm playing with it in my head right now walk-in okay shootai. good <laughs> walk-in shootai I envisioned a scene from like a beautiful mind right now where it's like being written on the screen as he thinks about it <laughs> walk-in shootai duo uh walk-in shoot walk-in shootai duo walk-in shootai duo walk-in shoot Tie duo. Walk and walk shoot and a shoot duo. Tie duo. Yeah. Walk and shoot a duo. Yeah. Walk and shoot a duo. <laughs> yes. Shoot tie duo. Walk and. Walk and. Well, it'd be shoot a shoot a duo, right? Shoot tie. There's an eye though. Don't forget the eye. But what if the eye is silent? What if it? Yeah, I think the D is silent. Walk and shoot a duo. Like you just say that that syllable, the tie as ta duo. Walk and okay. shoot a duo. Fascinating. Walk and shoot a duo. Walk and shoot a duo. Yeah, shoot a, walk and shoot a duo. duo. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher that. 